Nagarjuna, who is a great teacher of long ago, once raised the question of what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? And my sense is that this is a pretty timeless question, you know, without at all wishing to sound disrespectful. I can visualize the Buddha under a Bodhi tree 2,500 years ago and more, and people coming up to him and saying, Sid, what do you do with a life that doesn't go away? (laughs) Sid? Sid? What do you do with suffering? And he said there's a number of different responses. He said one way is the path of despair. Life is so unjust. How did this happen to me? Life is so unfair. He said, another pathway is a pathway of aversion and anger. It's your fault. It's my fault. Who do I blame to push it away? Another avenue more recently invented, I think, in our culture is guilt. I must have done something to deserve this. You know, it must be my, my mistake my imperfection. He said, none of these ways do anything at all to heal suffering. He said, there are other ways. And he said, they are the pathways of compassion and the pathways of investigation or understanding. Now, the heart of kindness is really a heart of compassion and Compassion is truly the very essence and spirit of awakening. And if our path, our practice to awakening and freedom is really dedicated, then we are really asked to understand suffering, to understand its causes, its end, and the path to its end. And wisdom and compassion together are called the two pillars of awakening. And they are pillars that are interwoven in every step of our path and journey. To understand and to find a way to heal suffering, we are also asked to understand compassion and to live in its light and to let it be the deepest motivation and the deepest aspiration in our path and in our life. There's a dedication from the Tibetan tradition I'd like to read you. It says, May I be a lamp for those who need light. May I be a place of rest for those who are tired. May I be a protector for those in danger, a guide for travelers on the way. May I be a boat or a bridge for all those who wish to cross the water. May I be a doctor in the medicine 
and may I be the nurse for all the sick beings in the world until everyone is healed. A compassion begins, of course, in the very same place for most of us that our journey begins, with simply the awareness of suffering and the understanding that not all suffering can be fixed or avoided, the understanding that suffering is not a mistake or a personal failure. And the question that arises from that awareness is is how suffering is healed in ourselves and in the world. How can suffering be responded to and embraced wisely? What does it even mean to heal suffering or to bring it to an end? I think these are the, the timeless questions of every spiritual path of every life. The word in Pali for compassion is karuna. It means a trembling heart, a heart that can tremble in the face of suffering. This translation of compassion really means that compassion is not a feeling as such, but it describes a very awake and open, a very spacious And in a sense, even though the heart trembles, it is also unshakable. And part of the understanding of compassion is the very, of course, very deep understanding, keenly rooted in our awareness of interconnectedness and interdependence, the interdependence of all things, of all life. Compassionate heart is also a heart of fearlessness, that deeply understands the emptiness of all views of self and other. And compassion's not a destination, it is a practice. It's not a noun, it is, like all things in this practice, a verb. And we might say that compassion is the most meaningful embodiment of emotional maturity and freedom. And the Dalai Lama once said that if you want others to be happy, practice compassion. If you want to be happy, practice compassion. I think it's very clear for us that for our hearts to tremble, we first need to be awake and aware. For us to learn to be open and steadfast in the face of suffering, we need to find the ways that we can actually stay close, stay near to suffering and pain. You know, in this path of mindfulness, we're encouraged, as we've mentioned, to contemplate the body internally and externally. To contemplate the story of our body is to contemplate the story of all bodies. To contemplate feeling internally and externally, to contemplate the landscape of our heart, is to contemplate the landscape of all hearts. To contemplate the mind internally and externally, is to contemplate the life of all minds. And for me, this instruction is really an encouragement to reach beyond the boundaries of our own story, to know our story well, 
but also to know that it's really a, a microcosmic view of all stories and all lives. Some of you have probably come across this six degrees of separation theory. You know, it suggests that through no more than five relationships in our life, we are actually related, related to everyone on this planet. I find that amazing contemplation. Those who seem far away are much closer than we imagine. And this contemplation of internally and externally is really intended to nudge us towards our understanding of interconnectedness. If we really understand it, there is no other response but compassion. It's encouragement to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves, and simply to be truly steadfast in the face of the magnitude of suffering that is held within all these stories and to appreciate the depth of our interconnectedness. What does it mean to contemplate internally and externally? There's a wonderful line quoted in one of my books that the world is not made of atoms, the world is made of stories. And the world as we know it is really a world of very interwoven stories. In a way, this room holds the world of all stories. In many ways, our story is, of course, very unique to us. Yet within that story that's so unique to us, we see running through it like a river all the universal themes of life. If you just reflect for a moment on all the sorrow, the loss, the disappointment you've been asked to meet and embrace in your life, the way that you may have suffered through rejection and blame. If you reflect from a moment the heartache, the despair, the loneliness, the fear you have met in your life. Think of the story of your body, some of the pain and illness you've been asked to meet or are being asked to meet right now. The mind you've met over these days. It can be so obsessive, judgmental, blaming, anxious. Life brings affliction. And then just expand your awareness just a little bit. Aware of the people on either side of you, those who sit behind you, those in sit who sit in front of you. Reflect on all the shared stories and themes we listen to today. Do we imagine, can we possibly imagine, that there is anyone at all in this room who has not or is not being asked to meet their own measure of hardship and adversity? Is there even one person in this room who doesn't know what it means to be lonely, to struggle, to be afraid? Is there one person in this room who has not experienced pain or illness, one person who will not die? Now, compassion practice 
is really about this expanding of our awareness to the story of life. It doesn't in any way diminish or lessen our own story and the pain within it, but it does help us to understand the tapestry of this dilemma and the tapestry of suffering. John spoke the other night about the story of Kisa Gotami. There's another part to that story, where after Kisa Gotami had realized that she was not the only one whose child could die, she said to her dead son, I thought you alone had been overtaken by this sorrow called death, but you are not the only one. And she saw in herself all mothers through time who have cradled their dead children. Sorrow, of course, is not the whole story that underlies compassion. Is there any of us here who have not experienced times when in our hearts and minds we felt ourselves actually really shadowed by ignorance or confusion. Anyone in this room who has not at times spoken or acted out of greed or hatred or fear. And when we sense the world around us, it's hard to find a single being who has not done the same. And again, even this is not the whole story. Can we understand and live in a way where we really understand that all beings are united in their longing for safety and for happiness and for protection, united in their longing for freedom from pain and fear. And understand the longing of all to be cared for and understood and loved. Can we see the ignorance and the anger and the hatred in the world, not as other and not as theirs, but as ours, as if we were all part of a single organism, being born, living, breathing, and dying, and doing our best to find our way to peace and to happiness and to freedom. This understanding of our interconnectedness is the ground of the heart of compassion that actually leads to a compassionate life. Milarepa, they once said, just as I instinctively reach out to care for and heal a wound in my leg as part of this body, why should I not reach out instinctively to heal and care for a wound in another wherever it exists as part of this body. Out of this understanding of interconnectedness, there can rise a very natural and wise compassion that there is suffering, there is a trembling of the heart, there is an instinctive reaching out, but a wise reaching out. A gesture of unconditional compassion. A response that doesn't pass through the filters 
that questions, is this worthy or unworthy suffering? What will the result be? Am I good enough? Do others deserve this? A reaching out to suffering in which there's no blame or or hierarchy. The Dalai Lama has spoken of compassion as being the radicalism of our time. And I reflect on that a lot and and just to try and understand and really get a sense of what is truly radical about compassion. It's radical, I think, because my understanding is that compassion is really swimming against the tide of self-protection and self-cherishing, two of the most predictable and perhaps toxic themes of our time. We're so encouraged in our lives, you know, to look out for number one, to take care of ourselves, to fear others, to pursue the dream of a perfect life and find as much personal happiness as we can get. Unfortunately, this pursuit of happiness is equated with having more and more pleasant sensations and sights and sounds and events. And of course, there is something very human. I mean, nobody is asking us to like the unpleasant. It's very clear to understand that. And there's something very human about flinching in the face of the unpleasant and the difficult. But unfortunately, we see happiness too often as seen as being born of getting rid of suffering. And then that's the battle that we wage with life. How can I get rid of suffering? How can I get more of the unpleasant? How can I get less of the unpleasant? In that battle that is so often waged with life, there's hardly even any ground for compassion to arise. And it is true that the fertile ground for the birth of compassion lies in our genuine willingness to embrace suffering. It's very important to acknowledge that self-consciousness and self-protection and all the anxieties that arise from that is kind of it's part of the human condition. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's not something that, that's wrong. But it's something to be investigated, to really see whether in truth our attachment and preoccupation does actually bring happiness. Or does it cause us to suffer? Compassion is an understanding, is certainly not an encouragement to move from self-preoccupation to self-loathing or denial or self-neglect. It's not an encouragement to, to blame or shame ourselves for being selfish or self-centered. But it's really an encouragement to look at this whole domain of self-preoccupation with fearlessness and wisdom. Does it lead to suffering? Does it lead to the end of suffering? And it's out of that understanding that we learn to hold self-preoccupation just a little bit more lightly, but also, more importantly, that we learn to widen our circle of concern and to be deeply concerned with the well-being of all beings, 
really to know that my happiness is actually in truth directly linked to your happiness, that my fear is directly linked to your fear, that my freedom is knitted together with yours. A friend of mine, Stephen Batchelor, once said, that we cannot awaken for ourselves, that we can only participate in the awakening of life. In a very real way, the depth of happiness in our life is equal to the depth of our relatedness, inwardly and outwardly. Again, the Dalai Lama, he said, I found that the greatest degree of inner tranquility comes from the development of love and compassion. The more we care for the happiness of others, the greater is our own sense of well-being. Cultivating compassion for all puts the mind at ease. Compassion the contemplation of it actually counters our tendencies towards fear and resistance and the avoidance of suffering. We might say we cultivate the tendency and the inclination towards compassion through turning towards suffering. Dogen, again, one of the great teachers of the past, he asked his own teacher, what is the mind of compassion? And his teacher answered, It is a soft and flexible mind. Dogen said, what is this soft mind? The teacher answered, it is the willingness to let go of your body and mind. How do we cultivate this soft and receptive, flexible mind? We see that when we sit here, we sit in the center of the world of all suffering which actually happens to be right where we are in this moment. And every human being sits in the same place, sits with us, in the center of the same world. We sit with all the anger and the pain and the hardship we meet in our lives, and we know all beings in the world are actually doing just the same. It's where the Buddha sat when he sat under the Bodhi tree. Rev. Anderson once said, he said, The Buddha didn't sit on the edge of suffering. He didn't sit in the suburbs of suffering. (laughs) He sat downtown. And we're already there. We're already downtown. We only need to open our eyes and our hearts to that truth. And this is, too, where compassion is radical. Because it does ask us really to find the fearlessness of a Buddha. It doesn't mean there's no fear. There's plenty of fear. The fear of being overwhelmed, the fear of getting lost, the fear of not being good enough, the fear that our heart is not vast enough. And fear can be there. There's a reason why it shouldn't be there. Fear can be there without us taking it up and running with it as if we're in a football game aiming for a touchdown. Because the moment that we pick it up and run with it, we start closing down. Fear can be there without us becoming fearful. And that's such an important distinction to make. 
because we see that being fearful and self-protection get wedded together in this terrible marriage. You know, and look at our world. You know, quite frankly, you know, in our culture we seem to be more and more encouraged to live a fearful life. You know, to be suspicious and mistrustful, you know, to, to blame and to hate. And all, you can see what happens, how it solidifies the story of self and other and the gap between them getting bigger and bigger and bigger with each moment of holding on to fear and the endless alienation and conflict. And that alienation, actually, you know, it doesn't begin anywhere else except with us. And it is such a radical act to renounce the pathway of being fearful. Because out of that fearfulness will come the thoughts and the words of blame and ill will. And we learn to connect again and again. It's such a practice with this soft mind, this flexible mind, this wise heart. It's a Tibetan monk spent 21 years imprisoned in Tibet or China, mostly in solitary confinement. And throughout the whole time, he was beaten and tortured and abused on a daily basis. His life was continually threatened. And yet he emerged, and in recent years, he's... he's kind of gone around and talked with many people and spoken about the experience of those very tormented years. And the one thing that's very obvious in him is heart is intact. He doesn't actually speak about revenge or despair or hatred. He's just an ordinary monk. And the Dalai Lama said to him, He said, in all these years, were you ever in danger of losing your life? And he said, many times. He said, but my time of greatest danger were those moments when I was in danger of losing compassion for my jailers. I seem to suggest that in all those years that actually he felt many things other than compassion. I mean, who wouldn't? But despite this range of feeling, it is something about his commitment to compassion that enabled him not only to survive, to do something much more than survive, to to really stay connected with this soft, flexible, committed heart. There was uh, something someone wrote about this monk. He said, when he saw him, he said, an appearance almost of timidity on our first meeting. A voice so quiet it might be a whisper. He could easily pass unnoticed until you met his gaze. A gaze filled with the perception of one who has seen so much that he has seen everything. Seen beyond the suffering he has experienced, beyond all the evil and abuse he has witnessed, yet expressing boundless compassion for his fellow human beings.
A compassionate heart that's soft and flexible, receptive, vulnerable, also needs to be wise and discerning. At times, it is true, I'm sure all of us have felt at times, in danger of becoming lost in suffering, overwhelmed, danger of, in danger of losing our ground, our stability. And the softness of compassion actually really needs the vigilance and the wisdom and the protection of mindfulness. Anger, fear, blame, self-righteousness, anxiety, they all can and do arise in the face of suffering. Don't have to be perfect to find compassion. You don't have to wait until all of this has gone away to really nurture compassion. But we need to know, to learn how to surround all that range of fear and anxiety and blame, to learn how to surround those feelings with equanimity, acceptance and spaciousness, to allow them to arise and pass without becoming lost in their currents. We need to know also how to listen inwardly and to discern when wise action and giving is, is, is needed and when wisdom asks us to step back and say no. Not at this moment. We need to listen to those times when actually our hearts and our minds are signaling a distress that we need to listen to. You know, and I found a certain neurosis in meditators, you know, who kind of feel like, oh, if there's suffering, it doesn't matter. If I'm completely unstable and ungrounded, you know, I'm going to stay there, you know. Uh, Overwhelmed does nothing but undermine confidence. Sometimes we need to listen, to take the moments to pause, to rest, to step back, to reclaim that steadiness and the greatness of heart because it asks a great deal to be close to suffering in our lives. We are training ourselves in a compassion that is boundless and unconditional, but it is a training. When does compassion most easily falter? My sense is there's two areas where it most easily falters. One area is in the rocky ground where we, we do get a little despairing. And we, we sort of see, sense the immeasurable nature of suffering, suffering and, we seem, and it seems impossible to bring it to an end. That's when compassion can falter. The other area that compassion can falter is when it is faced with ignorance, when we are faced with those who misuse others, who abuse those who perpetrate suffering or inflict harm upon others. I came across something recently, a few lines said by a woman who's just now or was living in a wretched refugee camp in Darfur after her husband had been killed and her village burned. She said that if I go out to fetch water in the morning, I risk the almost certain possibility of being raped or even killed. She says, if I don't go out to fetch water in the morning, I risk the almost certain possibility 
that my children will die of thirst. It's one account amongst countless stories of people in the world who face on a daily basis an almost unimaginable suffering and choices. And we are asked to imagine the impossibility of ending suffering, but to act as if it was possible to do so. Empathy is the ground of compassion. And we can't feel, obviously, or know actually in truth another person's feeling or experience, their heart and their life. But we do know that we live with the same heart and might. With its capacity for hatred and for love, for fear and the longing to be free from fear. It is why in the Bodhisattva tradition, the Bodhisattva vow says, although suffering is endless, I vow to end it. When our hearts are open and we're faced with so much pain and sorrow and suffering, it's so intractable that we can't even trace its beginning. The terrible violence in our world, the children who die, thousands of them needlessly each day, We also meet the seemingly intractable within our own hearts and lives, obsessions that linger for years, chronic illnesses that are not going to go away, a tenderness of heart, uh, you know, and, and sometimes patterns within our own hearts and minds of anger or judgment or blame that seem so deeply embedded. We meet intractable, difficult people in our lives who don't ever seem to change. You know, sometimes people speak of compassion fatigue happening. It doesn't happen, compassion fatigue, just because we face suffering that seems impossible to end. It also happens, compassion fatigue, because too often we see compassion as a solution, as a way to fix something that we have an agenda for change. And we're asked again and again to find the way to a depth of compassion that asks for actually nothing in return. Compassion asks us to act and to live in a way as if it is truly possible to heal suffering and to free all beings from pain and suffering. And we do this in the face of the seeming impossible. We take our seat in compassion, and we find the willingness to listen to the cries of the world, to align ourselves with a commitment to protect and to heal, to protect our own hearts from despair and ill will and resignation and fear. And as we do this, we lessen the mountain of suffering in the world. And as we do so, actually, we offer protection to all beings, like the Tibetan monk said, my time of greatest danger is the time when I'm in danger of losing compassion for those who harm me. A second place where compassion easily falters or or even disappears is in the face of those people who perpetrate violence, suffering, who oppress, who inflict harm, 
those who abuse or kill. Sometimes even with those who much, in much less harmful ways judge us or speak harshly to us or blame us or ignore us. The Vasudhimaga, which is one of the commentaries in this teaching, describes a way of practicing compassion where we begin by, by first holding in our hearts all those who are innocent, who are blameless, who are suffering so deeply, a child with cancer, and then to visualize all the children in this world who have cancer, who are suffering, innocent, nothing done ever to warrant this. It asks us to, to connect with just one person who's aging and frail and suffering some of the, the painfulness that comes with aging, and then to expand that and to get a sense of all the people in this world in, that, in this moment who are aging and frail and suffering that hardship. To connect with one person who is dying, to hold them into our heart. And then to expand that awareness and just imagine all the people in this world, in this moment, who are drawing their last breaths. To hold in our hearts just one person in this moment who's, who's innocent, who's caught in some natural tragedy of flood or drought. They've done nothing to warrant this. And then to imagine all these people in our world who have done nothing to bring upon themselves to incur the hardship that they are experiencing. And then it gets radical. (laughs) Then to bring our attention to someone who causes pain, who may have hurt us or all the people in this world who cause pain through their acts or their words, their choices. All of those people in this world whose hearts are governed by anger, by power, by the desire to harm. That's where it's really radical. To understand the suffering of that. the painfulness of their acts, the painfulness of their own anger, we might feel that it is more appropriate to blame than find compassion. We are speaking about the most lost beings in this world. The most beings who are most lost, who've opened the doors of their own heart to alienation, disconnection, terror, torment. And what does compassion mean in the face of ignorance? This is what we're talking about here. We're talking about the the misuse, the abuse, the hurtfulness that is born of ignorance. What does compassion mean in the face of ignorance? Would compassion really be true? if it was only embrace the suffering of the innocent? What does it mean? At times it means being fearless and saying no to the causes of suffering. 
You know, compassion is not any way passive or condoning. In fact, if you look at the history of some of the, the kind of embodiments of compassion, you know, Kuan Yin, you see two, two statues of Kuan Yin out in, the, out in the walking room here. You know, and you see Kuan Yin in this very receptive, you know, pose, receiving the world. But if you look historically, Kuan Yin is also sometimes portrayed as an armed warrior you know, with crossbow and spear and shield. And the commitment there is the fearlessness to say no to the causes of suffering as an embodiment of compassion. To reach out to protect where protection can be offered. Compassion doesn't try and explain or justify the acts that are born of ignorance. Suffering is suffering. But I feel, too, that we all know the acts and words and thoughts that have been born of ignorance within ourselves that have caused harm. Just magnify that a little. Are we so exempt? Just as no one in this world is exempt from suffering, it's hard to find any beings that are exempt from ignorance. And this, too, as for compassion. On a retreat recently, I told that story about the woman in Darfur. And someone got so mad at me. And they said, you know, this everybody on this retreat should get up, you know, they should get off their butts. They should be out there doing something, you know, and what does this meditation stuff do for any of this suffering, you know? And then she wrote this poem. And she admits that she borrowed a few lines or adapted a few lines from a poem by Ian Cummings. She called it Doubt. She said, some take refuge in God or the Buddha. I take refuge in the vegetable garden. In this deep bowl of silence, mind wrestling with doubt, I can sit no more. I stomp across the green fields, raging at whatever invisible presence may or may not be listening. The only hindrances on this path are gates with well-oiled locks. Outraged for the woman in Darfur who must choose between the risk of rape or murder fetching water and her child dying of thirst. Questions pursue me along the empty path, persistent as the rooks cawing in the treetops, but no answers come out of the quiet earth. Later, tired and heart sore with grief, I walk in the vegetable garden, glad to be back among things I know and love, whose life it is simply to green and flourish. Lying down on the warm grass, I look up into the kind face of a giant sunflower, peaceful to its dying as any Buddha. And it is then a voice says, more space, more space, less intensity. She who pays too much attention to doubt will never wholly kiss you. Some things we simply cannot know. Would you ever interrogate a sunflower seed about its possibilities? Compassion, in truth, needs to be equal in size to the cloth of ignorance that we meet in the world. Ryokin said, Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to gather up all the people in this floating world. I used to argue with my teacher so much about compassion. And I used to 
walk that same path of, you know, blame, 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 you know, your fault, whose fault. He had come out of Tibet. He had lost his family. He had suffered unimaginable hardship. And he would look at me and he would say, swallow the blame. I would say, no way. (laughs) And he would say, swallow the blame. Swallow the blame. Compassion has a willingness to acknowledge, too, as that ignorance is part of the mandala of suffering. As much as a broken heart or an alien body, compassion has no boundaries in the suffering it can acknowledge. If there was no suffering and no ignorance, there would be no need for wisdom or compassion. Even the Dalai Lama said, I cannot pretend to practice compassion all the time. But it gives me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside, I realize how valuable, beneficial, and transforming it is. That is all. And sometimes it is in the face of ignorance, it's in the face of suffering that cannot be fixed. It's in the face of the intractable that we can begin to discover a depth of compassion that we never even knew was possible for us. It's a wonderful saying. It says a true prayer becomes possible when, the heart, when all doors are closed and the heart is turned to stone. In this path, this teaching, we speak about the liberation of the heart through compassion. And our path, our practice, your work, It asks of us to understand what that means for us in this life, in this moment, to liberate our hearts through compassion. Can we cultivate that soft and flexible mind? Can we cultivate cultivate that vast and spacious heart that can tremble and respond, deeply dedicated to healing sorrow, to healing suffering. I to end with a poem. It says, When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty in the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars, waiting with their light. For a time I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. We take just a moment quietly together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.